0: construes specific investment advice and if you do require advice you should seek an appropriate advisor be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer and i made a whole bunch of notes during the ipp presentation i'm going to subject you to some of them now This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the Life Insurance Licensing Program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching, and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Uh, This episode is going to be good for life insurance credits in all jurisdictions. Uh, One life insurance credit in Alberta, no ANS credits in Alberta here, no ANS topics show up, and uh, the sort of broad financial planning topics we see here are not supported by the Accreditation Committee in Alberta for ANS credits. Um, we have one IAS credit, a financial planning credit from FP Canada, a professional development credit from IROC, and a financial planning process credit from MFDA. There's a whole bunch of stuff here. I What happened, I came back uh, every night uh, from the IFP conference and sort of immediately recorded my thoughts. So, there's a lot here. And in fact, there's so much that in the course of the conference, the three and a half day conference, I really ended up with too much content for one episode. So you're going to see that this episode bleeds over into the next. I have about an hour long episode here. And then from the next conference, I went to the Financial Therapy Association Conference. I came away with a little bit less content there. I learned a lot more. Honestly, I, this conference was a lot of revisiting concepts that I knew when getting to meet people I hadn't met before. Um, FTA conference, the next recording I'll do after this um, was just solid three days of learning, but it's hard to compress it because I'm less familiar with the content, I suppose. I'm probably less comfortable presenting some of that stuff for your consumption. Um, so anyways, you're gonna hear that this conference, the Institute, for Advanced, sorry, Institute of Advanced Financial Planners conference was just jam packed with all kinds of great financial planning topics. Um, And yeah, the first two days are captured here in uh, this episode and the next episode is gonna be a combination of two conferences. All right, the object for today is this coffee cup right here. I think we can read it. Everything I say will be on the exam. So my coffee cup, this coffee cup was uh, bought for me by, um, as a great gift by Amanda McCloy. Amanda has been a student in classes here and there over the years. And for those that know Amanda, uh, she's here in Edmonton, reach out to her for some exciting career news from Amanda. So next time you see her say, hey, Amanda, what's going on? And I'm sure she'd be excited to share with you. All right, let's uh, roll into the interview. Thanks so much. Doing something a little bit different for this episode. This is another all Jason episode, unless I can get a guest to join me for one the next couple of days. Uh, But I am here at the Institute for Advanced Financial Planners, sorry, Institute of Advanced Financial Planners Conference in uh, beautiful Gatineau, Quebec. You can see the lights of Gatineau out behind me here. And today was day one of the conference. And I thought it'd be interesting to go over some of the um, learnings from the day. Uh, Today was pretty heavy on fund managers. So we'll talk about that. I find presentations by fund managers have sort of a mixed bag. Um, I'm not generally a big fan. I know some of you know this of uh, active management. So you know, sometimes I think I'd like to just see the, you know person explain how to build an index. But anyways, here we are. We had um, quite a few presentations today from active managers, and there's still there's a lot to be learned here, and these are certainly all people who are smarter than I am. So we started off with Hadiza uh, Jadao. And Hadiza is from McKenzie's fixed income team. Um, And she talked about uh, building fixed income portfolios, really talked about where there's risk with uh, fixed income. She managed to get through, I think, the whole presentation without actually specifically using the word duration once and uh, had a fair bit of a, a distinction here between High credit products and high quality products, and I appreciated this distinction. And she explained some of what we've seen happen in the markets recently. Notably, some bonds that would have traditionally been considered high high quality, so investment grade bonds, um, have been downgraded into high credit. So, the uh, the sort of riskier, maybe junk category. Um, and she said that what's happened there is then we've had a sort of push of what she considers still relatively high quality bonds into the into that you know seemingly low quality category. so pretty interesting. the other thing that she said, which I know got some um, concerned looks and I, I agree with this uh, is that a GIC is not an investment. I always like to distinguish between investment and savings. I'm not sure if it's what she meant, but, I really liked it and I uh, tweeted that out and I got some pushback from some folks, but I thought it was a good uh, a good comment. And really what she's showing there is that if you're looking to be invested somewhere, that is with the opportunity for returns, a GSE doesn't give you any opportunity for a capital gain, for example, whereas bonds still do give you an opportunity for a capital gain. So now if you hold a bond until maturity, if you buy it new and hold it till maturity, fine, no capital gain. That's not how most bonds are, are bought and sold. So that was a, it was a good presentation. She was an excellent speaker and um, brought a good international perspective as well. She uh, spent most of her investment career working in France. So I thought that was quite interesting. Our next speaker um, is also from an asset manager, but he actually did something a little bit different. And I thought this was a nice way to Sort of demonstrate that you care about education. Um, Giles Anderson talked about uh, the sort of origins of Bitcoin and the the place that Bitcoin holds in the market today. Um, he presented a couple of things that I found interesting. Some stuff that uh, I'm actually going to ask uh, Ben Felix. Ben's going to be here, um, I think maybe tomorrow, but definitely on Friday, um, and he's giving a presentation here. And of course, those that know. Um, The Rational Reminder podcast, which you've heard me talk about quite a bit, know that they have just they're working on a series that's currently at part seventeen, and deals with all kinds of uh, just great questions about how uh, Bitcoin works. And it noted for me then uh, some things that came up in Giles's presentation. Two things that I don't really know much about. Um, One of those things being the real business of Bitcoin mining. So what does the sort of business side of Bitcoin mining look like? I'm going to ask Ben if he can get somebody on his podcast to talk about that. Um, And then the other thing that came up there that, again, I was pretty ignorant about, um, but there was some stats in Giles's presentation that addressed the use of Bitcoin as maybe not quite a currency of choice, but as a fairly prevalent currency in, and his statistics showed uh, Nigeria and Vietnam. I'd be curious if anybody who's listening um, has experience with that, but uh, yeah, specifically yeah, Nigeria and Vietnam. Apparently, there's relatively high Bitcoin adoption, and we had a good conversation about this. Jason Prayer and I chatted about this past episode. Yes, Jason prayer and I chatted about this after the after the uh, presentation, where you know this idea that if you're in a country where you know we, uh, Bitcoin gets criticized for being not very stable in terms of its value, we've certainly seen this recently, but in some parts of the world, your currency is at least that unstable. So, you know, the, and even the Canadian dollar, you know, we see the Canadian dollar fluctuate in you know, over the last decade, it's been anywhere from um, at par with U.S. dollar to, you know, 70 cents or even 66 or 65 cents on the the U.S. dollar. So we do get some fluctuation in value here. That is um, fluctuation. So, you know, and then the idea that if you are, Having to flee, and you'd see this, you know, with some folks leaving parts of the Ukraine today, where you know the Russians roll in. And if you're dealing with a, a sort of local, regional type of bank, um, your savings could all be lost just due to that uh, violent action. Um, if you're holding savings in Bitcoin, well, it's more likely to withstand that type of thing. I, I'm certainly not concerned about that, I and mean, maybe I'm naive here, but I'm not concerned about that as a you know Canadian. But I can see how in lots of parts of the world, and of course, a lot of you know that I've seen that stuff uh, firsthand. So you know, in other parts of the world, you you certainly um, are at risk there. Okay, our next presenter was Sheila Wilson-Kowal, and uh, she came from um, Cardinal. And Cardinal does a whole range of different assets or a whole bunch of different investment products. Specifically, Sheila talked about uh, dividend investing. And talked about the the benefits of dividend. It's an interesting time to talk about this. You know, I think there's a valid question to be raised here. Um, when we see companies hiking dividends, as we saw, you know, last year we saw a fair bit, or over the last year we saw a fair bit of dividend hikes. Is that an inflation uh, inflation protection measure? Um, you know, we've had the still the the capital value of stocks decrease. We're at a time now when stocks are down a little bit over the last uh, year. And I think there's at least a question to be posed as to the extent to which dividends are an inflation protector. Um, our next presenter was Alex Steele from Avenue Living. And um, this was interesting. Avenue Living is sort of a consolidator, aggregator, and investment opportunity then in the multifamily space. So they buy up sort of mid sized multifamily. Units and accumulate. They have uh, doors all across Canada, at least in all the provinces, and quite a bit in the United States as well. Um, Sort of a different investment opportunity here. And um, Alex presented this as, uh, let's say, an alternative to bonds, a place where you could park some money and have good, stable income coming in. So, you know, I was like thinking about real estate as an investment. Certainly, we've had those discussions lately on the podcast. And I can see the role this would fill. I'm not sure that I would want to go with, you know, my whole fixed income chunk of my portfolio reliant on, um, you know, residential multifamily. Um, He did make the point that it fared well through COVID. So we might've seen, you know, commercial real estate come off. We might've seen some other real estate issues, uh, but on the whole multifamily residential, uh, tenants continued to pay rent, uh, largely supported in Canada, anyways, by Serb. So, you know, there there is that um, at least that recent uh, incident of stability. The next presentation was the uh, Robinson report, and here we had uh, three folks from a mortgage investment corporation. And they did it kind of like a, uh, an interview style followed by a little game show. So it was fun. There was a real uh, bit of levity with this and lots of laughter from the audience, which was nice. Um, you know, you, you watch presentations over and over again from um, asset managers that can get a little dry. So this was well-timed. And, you know, we're thinking about whether or not when you're doing these presentations is there, and when I'm doing them for that matter, is there some way we can add a little bit of levity? And they talked about using mortgage investment corporations. There's over 300 mortgage investment corporations operating in Canada today, and they distinguish their firm as being um, sold on a prospectus. And that means you have a pretty high standard. That means there's an auditor who looks at it. That means it's subject to regulatory requirements. Lots of other mix are sold on an offering memorandum, which might be a lower regulatory standard, no matter what. Um, one of the messages they imparted was that before you put client money in a mic, you really have to understand the product. And we see this, of course, today with the client focused reforms. So if you're going to use an investment like this, your KYP responsibilities are pretty high. And I don't think you can rely on you know, saying something like my firm told me it would be okay. I, I really think that um, if I'm an advisor putting money into one of these things, I want to understand the underwriting. And I tweeted about this one, and past episode guest Dan Hallett um, tweeted back and said, Yeah, you really, he said the same thing they said in the presentation. You want to understand the underwriting, you understand the risks, you want to understand um, what can go wrong with that MIC. And there's certainly, uh, with you know, 300 of them out there, you're going to find a wide range of quality. Okay, our next presentation. Continuing on with the fund manager idea, we had Mike uh, Dragositz, and he talked about impact investing specifically in the clean energy space. I don't think he actually ever used the word impact investing, um, but talked about that clean energy investment. And this is sort of an interesting one. It's a quasi-index. So um, he's not investing, strictly speaking, on an index, but he's running a fund where there are 40 holdings. And he identified that he's holding the forty largest uh, players in that sort of pure, uh, clean energy space, and talked about really um, providers at the sort of first tier. So people who build solar panels or components for solar panels, or you know companies that uh, put in wind turbines or own solar farms, that kind of thing, where it's that that immediate sort of. Um, stuff that's either directly involved in or required for the production of clean energy. It was a, it was a good presentation, interesting. I can see here where there's a, a challenge with this kind of investment. He spent an awful lot of time talking about the selection process and talked about the sort of climate change problem and so forth. And when the question came up about returns, he was a little bit, um, say, political in his answer about returns. So, okay, um, we had a quick mini, mini yoga session. Kudos to the organizers for uh, keeping us uh, moving around. So I hope that uh, I hope that paid off that people watched on Zoom too. I thought that was a, a fun little session. Um, nearing the end of the day now, we had um, Ari Broja, and Ari talked about uh, the product estatably. and this was a pretty neat presentation. Um, so the the way Estateably works is you, As an advisor, it's only available for advisors. So this is the first thing is uh, if you're buying this, you're buying something your clients actually, as I understand it, cannot buy. And you pay $190 per client return. So you pay at the time of. And the whole idea here is it really simplifies the estate administration process. So it It prefills forms, it has the forms for the province you're in, pre-populates those, saves just a ton of the kind of headaches that nobody wants to deal with when you're coping with the death of a loved one. I thought it was a really neat presentation. Um, I'd like to see the product in action. I'd like to find an advisor who's used it and see that it's actually done what it's supposed to do. And um, it's mostly been sold to law firms but Ari raised the point here that there's no reason an advisor can't be using it. And I know there are some advisors using it. The guy sitting beside me actually past episode guest Aaron Hector said that's a pretty low price to pay. And you know, I, I made the point. This is not Aaron. This is me being mercenary here. But you know, if you do something like this and the next generation sees that you've been so helpful in administering the estate, you provide this valuable tool for them, there's a good chance if you're working under an assets under administration. Um, or under management model, then you can maybe retain those assets, and it, maybe you don't want to. Maybe it's not a model you want to work from, but the calculus here is pretty good. You know, if you're working, if you have ten clients and you use uh, something like a stateably on on ten of them, and you retain one client you wouldn't have otherwise retained, or one sort of uh, client's assets, I suppose that you wouldn't have otherwise retained when it goes to the next generation. Well, that's probably a good payoff. So. Um, something I would think about anyways. Um, the other points that are raised, and it actually overlapped quite a bit with the next presentation, um, was on this sort of, uh, I'm going to say, cyborg model. And that overlaps quite a bit with uh, James Fraser's presentation, James from PlanWorth, and uh, James, curiously, a tax lawyer who's uh, worked with another tax lawyer to develop um, some financial planning software. and. The uh, the big comment here, the thing that I took away from it was that cyborg model. Basically, that um, consumers today are looking for an experience where they get to deal with a human being, but it also doesn't necessarily feel like a sort of twenty first century experience if there's not some technology component to it. So, you know, the the idea that I can log in to a portal somewhere and see something about what's happening with my financial plan that it's not something that my financial planner sort of holds behind the, the the curtain. And I only get to see it when I'm working with that person. And we can have sort of a living, breathing financial plan potentially that way. So I think it's something to look at anyways. And you know, we've seen like Wealthsimple, which I know, or Quest Trade. We've seen these uh, get a lot of traction uh, just from ease of consumer use. So I think it's worth considering in your practice whether or not you're getting or you're giving your users that same experience? Do they have a, a sort of high level of ease of use, if that makes sense? And then what was for me the highlight of the day? I enjoyed the presentation throughout the day, but the highlight of the day for me um, was, and this is not going to surprise anybody, we've had two past episodes where we've talked about the individual pension plan. And we had three folks, two actuaries and one non-actuary um, from West Coast, who came on and, and those who have done class with me will know that I typically will tell people to use either West Coast or GBL when you're looking for an actuarial firm. So this was nice to see. They were so good. Um, so Bruce Moyer and Bruce sort of uh, ran the show and um, he really, he, he understood the IPP very well, but then he really leaned on the two actuaries, Spencer McCaig and Stephen Chang, and both were excellent. So I wanna just highlight Stephen for a second here. Uh, Stephen's been working with IPPs since really before there were IPPs as we know them. He was around in 1991 when the rules changed to move us from IPPs as being an executive only uh, type of compensation to the way we typically see them done today as a business owner type of compensation. So this was very interesting. He knew the history, he knew all the legislative changes. That was pretty cool. And I made a whole bunch of notes during the IPP presentation I'm going to subject you to some of them now. So I have um, a little bit of a scheme I'm working on here. And I did get to talk to Stephen about this um, at dinner tonight. Um, this is the joy of coming to these conferences. You get to have dinner with actuaries. Um, and I guess technically we had drinks, not dinner, but whatever. So, you know, when we look at provincial disability programs, and I'm going to use AISH in Alberta, H, for example, does... Have an exemption for pension assets. So, if you have an RSP, for example, that's offside for H. If you had one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in an RSP, H would say no, that's too much assets. You're off. But if you had a pension, a literal RPP, so either DC or DB, then that pension asset is exempt. So, an IPP is a defined benefit pension. That's the whole idea here. And because the IPP is a DB pension, I'm fairly certain that it would not count against the H asset test. And I believe this is true in all provinces. I do have to do some research around this and make sure. But if you're in a province where pension assets are exempt, then you could potentially have a case where you have a multifamily situation. And in that multifamily situation, you'd have, let's say, mom and dad run the farm and they have a child with a disability. And the child with the disability can work enough; doesn't have to be a ton, but can work enough to get onto T4 income. We could actually set up an IPP there, and effectively create a, a pension for the child. You would you could fund it based on mom and dad's T4 income, and have the child with you know a relatively small T4, you know, like ten thousand dollars a year or something like that, and really um, create an asset. Then that when mom and dad die, it becomes almost like a tontine, although there are some limitations here, but it becomes almost like a tontine where the child now has that pension as an ongoing asset. So I don't know if that's something that anybody would ever want to play around with, but there is a concept there and I'm going to work that up a little bit more. I think there's something to it. Okay. the um, other, the other The thing that really caught me off guard here, and I just, I did not realize this was the extent to which terminal funding, and I write about this in the advanced curriculum for our CFP students, um, but I did not realize how large this can be. And Stephen um, really did a good job emphasizing this. I think actually Stephen and Spencer both talked about this. And they said, it's not unusual that they see terminal funding at a million dollars or more. And that terminal funding comes when you're leaving employment. So you're, you're now, you're done You're going to switch your IPP now from an accumulation to a decumulation tool. And at that point, you get terminal funding. And the deal here is that while you were working, you were funding the pension based really only on the promised income based on the pension needed to replace your employment income. But at departure, so when you're flipping that switch from accumulation to retirement or accumulation to decumulation, Then you have your survivor benefits, your Canada pension plan bridge benefits. You have all these um, top-ups indexation that have to now be brought into account really to make the pension completely, I'll say solvent, although that's not the right word, but to make it big enough to meet the promises that we would see from a, let's say a commercial defined benefit pension. And they said often they see top-ups here in the million dollar-ish range. Interestingly as well, uh, when we're in this high interest rate environment, this has no impact on uh, IPP funding models. The IPP funding models are all set in Income Tax Regulation 8515. Those numbers are not variable. They're fixed amounts. So uh, Income Tax Regulation 8515 Uh, gives us a cap or set amount, 7.5% returns, 5.5% assumed increases in wages and overall compensation, and a 4% inflation factor. Those are the numbers you're using. So no matter what the today rate is, the IPP still is calculating everything it does using that set of three numbers. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And again, something I had no awareness of. The one question that came up, again, something I did not know, and I was grateful to learn this is that an IPP, as far as overfunding goes, the most that an IPP can be overfunded is by 25%. So you do all the calculations based on those numbers I just talked about. And if you have an IPP where the performance just knocks out the lights, and you end up 25% overfunded, then the future contributions are going to be reduced. So you don't take money out of the plan, but you do pair back on future contributions until that 25% is reduced. And the way that that would work is normally you have triennial reporting with an IPP. So normally you're just going to report every three years and you're going to show where you are relative to that funding. But if you want to accelerate that reporting, you can. You don't have to wait three years to report. So depending on what you're trying to accomplish with the IPP, um, it sometimes might be worth it to report um, more frequently than that. Okay um so lots there really enjoyed the first day of the conference the other thing i should mention actually is um, i got to see a ton of former students i got to see some folks i hadn't seen in a very long time meet some folks i'd never met um, except virtually so i I really enjoyed that i I love when people who have done classes with me in the past flag me down at a conference or what have you so thanks to those who did and uh we had the social afterwards and the social was so good. Um, I got to meet a ton of neat folks there, including again some former students. I got to meet, and I I, I don't want to um, malign anybody else here, uh, but I got to meet Ben Rabideau. Um, Ben is uh, a real estate commentator. Um, he has been on Banerjee's and Doug Hoyes' podcasts quite a bit. Um, he always has tons and tons of good data around uh, real estate. He's presenting tomorrow. He said he was going <laughs> to. I don't know. Uh, maybe he's going to predict when we're going to be in recession. I'm not sure. But anyways, he was really just a pleasure to meet and just exactly the same person in, in real life as he is uh, sort of on those podcasts. Uh, lots of fun, uh, good and opinionated, not at all hard to, uh, to visit with. I, I really enjoyed that. So yeah, highlight of the conference again, it's just the people you get to meet. Certainly I enjoyed the IPP presentation as with the others, but yeah, uh, being at these live conferences, meeting folks face to face, and I met a ton of great people today. So yeah, I uh, I really encourage you to get out, get to and maybe a conference. This is my first time at this conference, get to a conference you've never been to before. Um, I'll actually be at two conferences I've never been to this month. So it's a good way to be exposed to new ideas, see things you've never seen before, meet people you never would have met before, and just keep on learning. I, I got to learn a ton today. So, all right, I'll have another update tomorrow, and I think that's probably going to fill out a whole episode for us. Hey, it's uh, Jason again here, obviously, uh, checking in after a second uh, excellent day at the Institute of Advanced Financial Planners Symposium uh, from Gatineau, Quebec. And um, a great day full of lots of good learning today. Uh, We kicked off the day with something that I thought was really cool. So there's a case study, and it's actually an extension of a case study. So the way that IAFP does their conferences, everything is based on a case study. And they ask the presenters then to bring something in their content that links back to the case study. So they actually kicked off with a fun video that they did where it was uh, Terry Ritchie who's a well-known financial planner um, here in uh, Canada with the uh, Cardinal Point at Calgary um, and actually also they have an RIA in the United States and uh, Terry uh, sort of ran as the financial planner interviewing the McGuire family. Um, really good in terms of uh, how to set the stage. Um, I thought that was a, a nice touch um, I was a little bit disappointed. A lot of the presenters didn't really use the, the case study. And I think that that's maybe where there's some opportunity. So I don't know. I find with this kind of thing, it's for me anyways, it's always a challenge too, is kind of getting the presenters to do what you want them to do, because um, typically they have fairly robust compliance requirements. Uh, external communications requirements and so forth. So it can be hard to, it's like herding cats putting on a show like this. We have you know, presenters and, and as we're going to see, they have some that came from like the investment side and then they have some that came from completely outside the financial services industry. So um, our first uh, guest speaker today was Pierre Claroux from the uh, Business Development Bank of Canada. And this was an excellent presentation. He's an economist, and it's certainly an economist's presentation. Uh, There was a lot of good data that showed sort of where we're at. We're not in a recession, according to the data right now. And Pierre speculated that if we do enter into a recession, it wouldn't be a big recession. I I don't know for sure. Um, He was speculating that uh, we should see GDP growth somewhere. Um, around 1% at least over the next little while. So that would not be indicative of a recession. Recession is typically two consecutive quarters of uh, GDP reduction or negative GDP growth is what you'll typically hear, kind of a weird uh, phrasing. Um, And I heard an interesting comment here that has me again wanting to follow up on this. And this was about how Canadian productivity is low. Um, So we have a lot of firms in Canada that are putting in a lot of inputs and not getting a lot of outputs. And that's a concern. Um, Apparently, Canadian companies don't compare well to American companies in terms of productivity. Uh, And that actually came from a question from the audience. I I thought it was a really good question. And I did a tiny bit of research. I was in the conference all day today. Um, But I'm going to dig into this a little bit more and see what this really um, looks like um, as far as sort of on the ground, it's, it's a firm level or a sort of business level uh, question. So interesting to hear that it's uh, endemic um, or at least apparently endemic or near endemic. Um, and actually um, Pierre did, he because he's Business Development Bank of Canada, they specialize in lending to small business and or big business in some cases. And he had some, some response to that. And he talked about how Um, firms that do manage to master that productivity puzzle are significantly more valuable than firms that don't. So I thought that was a pretty neat uh, discussion. Anyways, um, our next presentation was something um, completely different. And this was uh, Sabi Duthie. Sabi used to run long-term care homes. So she owned and operated long-term care facilities, uh, sort of ripped from today's headlines. And now she's active in sort of consulting around long-term care issues. Um, and then John Johnson, who is a like a mostly retired lawyer, um, who dealt primarily in the area of going after people who had committed elder abuse and trying to gain some sort of restitution there. Um, so they have a book, Sabi and John have a book called Elder Abuse. You have a role to play. I have a copy of it right there. So every attendee has a copy of this nice book and I'll give it a, a read. I haven't read it yet, but give it a, give it a read and see what's going on there. Um, but they did a good job of laying out that the financial planner slash financial advisor um, can have a, a valuable amount of, let's say, influence here in helping to identify and prevent elder abuse. And I actually had a conversation tonight at dinner With a financial planner who said he had a specific experience with this wherein he thought that one of his um, older clients was maybe falling victim to um, a child being a little bit aggressive with uh, going after mom's money and he said to mom you know i talked to my financial advisor and he said if we keep spending like this then we're gonna have problems later on And he said that that seemed to curtail all activity. And the the mom actually thanked him specifically. Um, I thought it was a a good comment about, you know, just paying attention, noticing what's happening and a, a relatively innocuous intervention. I didn't call the police or anything like that and just put a stop to things before they got out of hand. And I think that's a lot of times all people need is they need to know that somebody is paying attention, somebody's watching, and that's going to be enough to curtail the type of activity that can turn more serious. It's very common with these kinds of things where somebody, you know, takes an extra 500 bucks one month and their role is power of attorney and nobody says anything. And so then a couple months later, easy to take another 500 and then another, and then, and so on and so on. That's really, really good problems. So, um, so, I'm going to actually, I think, have Savvy on the podcast here, and we're going to talk about these specific interventions and warning signs that uh, financial planners can watch for. Um, This was a good presentation, um, valuable, and I thought it's absolutely something where, as the financial planner, if I'm working with uh, retired clients, um, even pre-retirement a little bit, but especially if I'm working with clients who are right in that retirement age, I should really know um, a fair bit about facility care and about some of the, the things I could warn that person about, elder abuse around, and even things like, is an alter ego trust an appropriate tool to help out? What about trusted contact person? And... Uh, powers of attorney. So all of these tools that we have in our toolbox, well, if we don't really understand the the response that they're going to have, what they're responding to, then hard to know whether we should be using those tools or not. Okay. Um, our next presentation, uh, this was a highlight. I mentioned this, uh, that I got to meet Ben in uh, yesterday in the update I gave in the first chunk of this uh, podcast. Um, so Ben Rabidu, who is a, really a housing economist, housing analyst, um, and he had um, like 45 minutes of doom and gloom about the Canadian housing market. Uh, really, how we're badly overleveraged. How um, housing is kind of, let's say, costing us other entrepreneurial activity we should be doing. Um, how we have, and it wasn't really a focus on, let's say, overpriced housing. It was really the extent to which the Canadian economy is reliant on housing. And there's some validity to this. There's good reasons why we need good housing. We bring in, and Ben had some good stats around this, we bring in typically around 450,000 immigrants per year um, and those immigrants need places to live. We we need housing. It's not like this is something that we don't need. Um, but some concerns here about uh, the wrong kind of housing being built, so building a lot of seemingly one bedroom and sort of one bedroom plus condos, which is maybe not what the market demands. Some concerns that lots of stuff is being built for rental um, and that maybe that's not what the market demands. Seems like we might have a shortage of single family housing, dedicated sort of single family housing. Um, Really a great conversation. I said sort of 45 minutes of doom and gloom because he did end on a positive note. And the positive note was sort of that, and I think I have this right, I don't want to misquote him, but sort of that we're likely to have a recession. This is where Ben disagreed with uh, the previous economist, um, that we're likely to have a recession, but it should be a fairly short-lived recession, and we should emerge from it strong, that we still have good um, fundamentals that we're going to recover into here. And some discussion around um, and this is something near and dear to my heart and maybe something that we'll have somebody on the podcast at some point to talk about, but some of the things that are missing um, on the sort of entrepreneurial side. So, you know, I I have a beef with this and probably I have some bias here because I've never been uh, like I own residential real estate, but that's it. I don't live in Toronto or Vancouver. um, So I don't have this gain, but you know, I, I have this beef where lifetime capital gains exemption is, nine hundred and thirteen thousand six hundred and thirty dollars and the principal residence exemption is effectively unlimited well what are we incentivizing people to do okay or um, and this is something ben and i chatted about this a little bit offline afterwards he doesn't necessarily agree with my next point or at least he, he didn't um I don't, There's some issues with it that I recognize are more complex than what I'm about to say here, uh, but the fact that we can essentially use um, CMHC to borrow money to acquire rental properties, so effectively we have the government sort of underwriting that acquisition. Now, Ben raised the point here that we do need CMHC to make sure that we have sufficient multifamily housing and they finance some pretty serious projects here. So that's all well and good. I get that. The flip side of that, though, what I, what I guess I have a real beef with here is that our uh, sort of government small business lender, the Business Development Bank of Canada, who was our first presentation, uh, they really only lend to small businesses for the most part when it's to acquire a building or to acquire some kinds of equipment, um, whereas when you contrast that with the US Small Business Administration, uh, they make similar kinds of loans, but they'll loan uh, to businesses that deal in intellectual property, or they'll loan to business owners uh, to buy shares of their, uh, to buy into a business. So they'll essentially fund succession planning or fund partner buyouts, that kind of thing. So SBA, I find, is much better at supporting entrepreneurial activity. So we kind of have CMHC, which is really good at supporting the housing market, um, and we don't have the. So that you know that in my opinion, is gonna drive people more to wanna to be landlords and fine. I mean, people can be landlords, we need housing, uh, but you're not employing anybody that way. Uh, you know, Yes, a new house construction has employment for a short period of time, but you don't create a sort of ongoing viable business that way. So anyways, that's uh, I don't know how we feel about that, but that's kind of my opinion about that. Well, the next thing I should mention here is a uh, previous guest on the podcast, Aaron Hector, uh, had the chance to reveal the 2023 location uh, for the conference, and it will be in Edmonton. So um, I will be there. It's very close to home, um, maybe 40 kilometers from home for me. Um, and it's uh, it looks like it should be another excellent event. Uh, really good uh, team running this show. And that'll be in uh, September of 2023. And you don't have to be a member of the Institute of Advanced Financial Planners to attend the conference. There are plenty of people here who do not carry the RFP designation and are just here out of interest. Um, I would really encourage if you're a financial planner who's looking for A good financial planning conference. We saw lots of good financial planning content. um, And especially, I would say the last half of day one, and then throughout the day today. Uh, Then we had breakout rooms. So there were three breakout rooms. Um, I obviously could only attend one of them. I thought about moving around between breakout rooms, but I find it's kind of rude. I don't like to leave people's presentations in the middle if I can help it. Um, And I I was engaged in the presentation I was in. So uh, we had this presenter yesterday as well on the main stage. Uh, This was James Fraser from PlanWorth. And uh, James presented sort of the PlanWorth tool, um, did kind of a walkthrough of it. I I like where financial planning software is going here in general. um, And I see lots of this happening now where the newer suite of financial planning software products gives you... Tons of great tools. So, one of the things that James highlighted here was the ability for clients to put in their own information. So, essentially, we can open up the portal to them so that they can update um, or they can at least see what's going on. Um, I I think that's good. I think that's kind of what people expect or want. talked about a fair bit of integration with other platforms. This is interesting to me. And he raised a comment here about education. I I haven't had a chance to talk to him about this yet. Um, And I kind of agree with this. This is going to sound maybe dim coming from me and giving what I'm doing right this minute. Um, But he said, by and large, education doesn't really necessarily work. And the point he was raising here, I think, again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but... He said, "Like advisors will learn how I don't know a butterfly freeze works. Uh, maybe that's too complicated an example. They'll learn when it's appropriate to put a hold co in place. Uh, so you'll learn that in you know CFP advanced curriculum. For example, we talk about when to put a hold co in place. But if you go then the next two years of your life without ever dealing with that question, well, you're probably not really going to remember what any of the cues are to put a, a hold co in place. So I think James's point here was that." We can use uh, good financial planning software that has good triggers for the financial planner. Where, you know, if the if the sort of AI tools or or machine learning or whatever it is, the algorithm is working properly, um, it should tweak you to the point where, hey, financial planner, have you thought about a hold code? And that's sort of an assist. And I I think it does fit here. I'm not going to stop teaching people about hold codes, but I think it fits nicely. And it gives you that sort of nudge on the shoulder, where we say, "Hey, look, you know, fairly complicated concept. Maybe you haven't thought about this, but here's time to think about now adding that hold code." So, you know, there would be some tool in there, assuming there'd be some algorithm that says when the opco has assets over some threshold, or when the opco starts to accumulate assets, or before we invest with the opco. I don't know exactly what the cutoff would be, but presumably there would be something there where instead of relying on the financial planner to just know it sounds like the software tool is intended to, to tap you on the shoulder and say, Hey, look, it's time to think about this. Have you, have you considered hold at this point? So, and I get that. I think that that's um, that's very practical and necessary. Again, I'm not going to start or stop teaching people about hold codes. I think we have to learn those complex concepts. Uh, but, the idea then that we can get some help with it. And just like having a a paraplanner who would remind you of those kinds of concepts. Our next presentation was from, again, previous podcast guest, uh, Jason Pereira. And uh, Jason talked about the sort of future of financial planning and really framed it in terms of what we've seen in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia. And I thought this was good. He uh, gave sort of a rundown of the state of fiduciary and regulatory best interest in the United States. Uh, so that was excellent um, and I think prepares us for some of what we're going to see here in Canada. Maybe as we move towards, uh, we'll see some sort of um, fiduciary, and, fiduciary requirement. Um, he talked about what happened in the U.K., and really did some serious myth busting about what happened in the UK. You hear a lot of this with the UK, where people will say, well, they introduced RDR, the retail distribution review. And in the retail distribution review, um, what happened is they said, okay, you have to meet certain education standards. Uh, 30% of advisors left the business, but that's because they essentially sold up until, like they, they sold maximized profit until the day RDR came in. And then yes, we had a big swath of people leave, and lo and behold, you know, a year and a bit later, the numbers are back up. And uh, Jason shared a quote that was to the effect of, you know, since RDR, we have um, advisors about the same number of advisors running more profitable, more efficient business, and doing better work with clients. And Jason raised the point that, you know, while it had to be essentially legislated in, uh, legislating in that trust. In an industry where trust is a key tool for us, that increased the level of trust and then helps advisors to run better businesses. Um, And he sort of contrasted that with Australia and pointed out, and you hear a lot about Australia. For some reason, my Google feed actually shows me a lot of Australian financial services stories. But Australia went sort of whole hog, really um, took very aggressive steps to to do to cut away anything that looked anything like conflicts of interest on sale of financial services products, and probably went too far, Um, introduced degree requirements where if you didn't have a financial services degree, a financial planning degree that you couldn't work as a financial advisor, um, and without really any meaningful grandfathering. So in Australia, there really was a, a whole bunch of people who left the industry, never really came back. And this is one that's a little bit tougher. They're, they're starting to peel back some of those reforms, but that's difficult. And I should mention actually that uh, I got to meet Ben Felix, one of the co-hosts of the Rational Reminder podcast that you hear me talk about all the time. Uh, ben came to watch Jason's presentation. He's presenting on tomorrow's agenda. And it was a real treat to get to meet, Blen- um, get to meet Ben, just Super nice guy, interesting to talk to, has well-considered opinions about a variety of topics. So, yeah, I, uh, I was happy to get to meet him and looking forward to seeing his talk tomorrow. Um, our last speaker of the day was Peter Bowen. A lot of people will know Peter. He gets around to a lot of conferences. He's sort of the, well, he's Vice President of Tax and Retirement Research for Fidelity um, in Canada. Um, but you see him at a lot of industry events. He does sort of a range of different talks around, and in this case, he talks about succession planning. So, um, gave kind of a, I don't know, a broad overview of succession planning. Um, it, it was nice. It sort of set the stage. Uh, we didn't get into, and even though he is a CA, uh, CPA, he didn't get into any sort of tax nerdery. Uh, he did talk briefly. About how the safe income rules have some impact here on how we can set up um, hold co's. So, sort of pointed to structuring the, the hold co properly post estate freeze so we don't fall offside for the safe income rules. These safe income rules are pretty complicated, but basically, they say that when we're moving money up to a hold co, it has to be the after tax dollars of the op or else it's a capital gain for the hold co. So, really. This is an accountant's gig. Uh, it just means that we have to make sure that we have the accountant fully on board with whatever we're doing in terms of an estate freeze type of structure. So that was a good point. And really the only kind of technical topic that uh, Peter talked about in that chunk of the session, the other thing that he talked about, talked to what sort of sequence of income um, in retirement, and just went over some general principles here. Uh basically, I mean, you have to take out your RIF money first, and then talked about whether you're taking money of your corporation first, if you have a corporation, or whether you're taking money out of your um, non-reg accounts first. And um, and it it was good. I think that it's good to think about these, these principles, but it's very hard to put rules in place. And I just I can't come up with any other argument for sequence of withdrawals in retirement, other than to say it depends and you have to work with the client. And this is the value of good financial planning software. Good financial planning software should help you to model that well. And the third chunk of Peter's presentation was around the new um, first time home savers account. And this, I don't know, uh, you know how I feel about this. I think you've heard me say this before. I'm I'm not a huge fan of this thing. I think we could have done pretty much everything that the FHSA, FHSA does uh, just by tweaking some rules in the RSP. But then I guess it doesn't look like the government has done something to make housing more affordable. And I'm not sure that having another account makes housing more affordable anyways. Um, But some interesting comments came up here. The thing that I learned here that I did not know was how the carry forward room works in the um, FHSA. So basically, you can only carry forward a maximum of $8,000. So, if you had somebody, assuming the, age, the, the account comes online in 2023, and you have somebody who opens an account in 2023, it's at least age 18 to do so, maximum age 71, I uh, can't own a home at the time. So, if all those things are true, you open the account. And let's say for the sake of argument, you put $100 in, just open the account. And then you put in no money in 2024, no money in 2025, no money in 2026. In 2027, you start to fund it, you would have $15,900 of room. You would have carried forward just $8,000. You get $8,000 of new room. You've already put $100 of contributions in. So you'd have $15,900 of room. It's only a maximum of then $8,000 of carry forward. You don't accumulate carry forward with each year. So that's pretty interesting. Um, That does mean that there's not, and I had read this suggestion elsewhere, there's not really a benefit to setting it up early unless you can actually put money into it. So that was good. Um, and then, so Peter was our last speaker of the day. Um, I was happy to see, and I, I don't know who this lady is and I apologize, but we had a one of the sort of regular members um, who looked like completely on her own initiative. I love this, came up with a whole... Um, quiz based on who wants to be a a millionaire. And it was really, I had somebody from the audience come up and participate. And we all got to sort of play along in a financial services slash Harry Potter themed, um, who wants to be a millionaire. That was a good uh, uh, sort of fun way to end the day. And I I like when that kind of thing happens. You can tell that this is a nice community of financial planners. Uh, People are willing to take risks like that. And there's a lot of um, laughter in the group and sort of everybody knows each other. It, it is a nice um, environment. I quite like it. And actually I just want to comment too on what happened at lunch today. Um, we had, so I find I'm a sponsor for the event, you know, we business career college sponsored and it's sort of a tricky thing as a sponsor. You don't necessarily, I like to sit in the sessions and learn and I am not going to sit in the sessions and try and sell what we're doing. Um, but It was this sort of um, forced, uh, they they called it speed dating. And basically, and I don't think I've ever seen this at a conference, but I'm sure that this is not uncommon. Um, But basically, the attendees all sat at a lunch table. So they would sit at one table, let's say table 11. So you would just sit and eat your lunch at table 11. And the sponsors, meantime, would move. There was a gong they had. So I moved every four minutes. So you get four minutes to sort of go meet the folks at that table. Uh, Do your elevator pitch and then talk about whatever it is. And the gong sounds, and then you move to table 12 and you do the same thing. You have four minutes, you give your pitch, meet everybody, and then you move to the next table. It was really nice. Um, And again, it's a good group of people. They were curious and keen and so forth. But I liked it. It was, it felt like you could sort of sell without. Um, overly pushy or anything like that. So, I I thought uh, that was a good event, and I think that the groups liked it too. Certainly, um, I found I was following the actuaries. I mentioned yesterday that West Coast Actuaries was there, and I always had to like push the actuaries away. That every time I got there, there was people just they were like knee deep in questions for the actuaries. So, you know clearly the the tables enjoyed that opportunity to get some one on one time as well, and ask a lot of questions. So. Um, kudos to the organizers for that. Um, Again, I'll be at this conference again next year. And I really would encourage you to think about it. Um, And especially maybe if you're out in Western Canada and looking for a a conference to attend. Um, If you're somewhere else, you know, chance to visit Edmonton, you can come and check out our fair city. so as mentioned we're going to get the rest of the ifp conference ifp symposium sorry in the next episode so i hope that uh, you can come back in two weeks for that episode the number for today is seven the number for today is seven thanks so much for listening or watching and enjoy your continued studies if you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're gonna sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently the pricing is $200 a year, we may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today we have a cost of $200 a year, and once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom four. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, So I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, Now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, start your quiz, and you're just going to go through the whole thing. And then at the end of it, you'll be able to see your certifications. So we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products. We bring this up and we click on Wall Certificate, and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is, Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits. 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses like to thank uh, joe tong joseph is our editor both for video and audio content and joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good despite my better efforts um, i'd like to thank uh, maria nguyen maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for ce credits uh, veronica tiber does the quality assurance through that process And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of a learning opportunity they might not have known about.